Victor, we got uh, Mike on the line here. What do you want to ask him? With respect to asset management, what are some 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 good resources to to learn what what that is? The, the big thing there is um, active involvement and supervision. So because at the end of the day, especially if you're doing a value add or something that's just outside of the basics of, of collecting rent and fixing a faucet, the the property manager is just not going to be able to to really handle that. So you really have to be quarterbacking and running point on kind of every aspect of your business plan. And unfortunately, knowing as much or even more than your property manager about what's what's going on with the property and and, and just keeping them constantly on task because they'll, they'll constantly be things falling through the cracks. So first and foremost, it's active management. And then second, you know, connected to that is, is attention to the data. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. I'm very excited for today's show. It's another one of our Ask the Expert episodes. Uh, we have two amazing people along on the line with us today. We got uh, Michael Gilman and we got Victor Morales. So first of all, you know, bios for both of these gentlemen will be in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about them or check out their bios in the show notes, you know, please do. But uh, that said, Mike, welcome to the show. Brian, thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You're, give us a little bit of an idea of, of who you are and what your, what your background is. Sure. So I started my career as an attorney, went um, after law school straight in-house uh, at investment banks where I worked on the legal side supporting uh, trading desks mm-hmm. and uh, some investment banking desks. And that's um, around the time I got into real estate, which was actually independent of, of anything I was doing and happy to kind of go into what, what, what brought me there, especially yeah, and I was focused on um, securities and trading and you know, mergers and acquisitions. I had come into banking uh, right on the back of the financial crisis in 2000, mm-hmm. 2008, 2009, and I was working at Bank of America at the time. And so I was dealing with a lot of legacy to toxic securities cases. Yep. like CDOs and mortgage-backed securities. And these were supposed to be AAA, you know, super safe investments and ended up taking down the financial system. And, you know, kind of everywhere I looked, there was like risk inherent in the products that I didn't see a way to mitigate, whether mm-hmm. because it seemed like something out of left field could just completely destabilize and derail, you know, whether it was stocks or, or, or bonds, which provided just very low returns, perhaps. Right bonds you, you get comfortable with on a risk basis, but the returns weren't there. But um, every time I looked at real estate, uh, it, it was uh, seemed like a no-brainer. And you know what's funny is going to law school, being on Wall Street, I actually ended up learning about real estate through bigger pockets, through you know self-study, through books. And so it, it's kind of interesting that I, I found that so so valuable, mm-hmm. and th- that got me um, started. Essentially, I was like, all right, this is I think this is the best investment. I think uh, investing for cash flow at the time that seemed like a, like a pretty solid strategy, right? And as opposed to speculation, the problem with investing for cash flow is you got to find a cash flowing market, which are 
tough to come by. And when you do find them, they tend to be secondary markets. But um, so yeah, I started investing in some secondary markets in Northern New England. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. in New York and started building up a cash flowing portfolio. And that's, yeah. that's how I got started. So what, what type then, of assets did you uh, start with? I mean, were you looking single family, small multifamily? What, 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 what did your start look like? Just read about the different asset types. I was drawn to multifamily because mm-hmm. of, it, it was safer ha- having more units under one roof and just the scale you could reach. So I started immediately with multifamily. Nice. So, so you're searching for cash flowing uh, areas. What, what, was the, what was the size of your first multifamily? So my first multifamily was a 20 unit. It was about uh, 850000 Nice. And did you tackle that by yourself? Did you bring in investors? How did, how did you bring that one down? Uh, so that one I tackled uh, myself, but I, mm-hmm. I used a boatload of leverage. I levered it up about 95%. And I was yeah. able to do that uh, primarily because it was cash flowing really well. It was about mm-hmm. a, a, a 10 cap. You don't, you don't see that anywhere? What what year was this, by the way? What's, so what's this, was, um, this was 20, 2010. Okay. Oh, okay. So that that yeah, right after right after the collapse and things are starting to, to to pick back up, barely pick back up. So, all right. So you picked up this this, this twenty unit, eight hundred thousand dollars, very highly leveraged, but it was cash flowing. All right. So, were, were you planning on the market coming back up? Did you did you look at this financial crisis as like a real estate sta- sale or what? What what was going through your mind at, at the time? Besides, so, I mean, you already talked a little bit about that, but as far as this particular asset. So uh, this particular one, it was my first deal. I was super conservative. That's why I wanted to my cap rate, just a high spread between my my cost of yeah. capital, cost of financing, you know, and, and annual income. And I was essentially, I wasn't betting on any appreciation at all. I just was doing it for the cash flow. And then I, I factored in force appreciation through, and this was a, a, a tertiary market, Northern New England, uh, this mm-hmm. deal happened in Vermont. So I didn't factor in any kind of organic rank growth, just uh, kind of NOI efficiencies, which in a cold climate like Northern New England, you could really do a lot with energy efficiency, yeah, uh, things like that. So even though this was 2011, it was um, I was when I was scouring for deals. Again, this is me still coming into the industry. All I knew was um, listed deals, and that's all I was looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, as well as calling broker trying to get on their radar, but. I, you know, I, I was looking at more major markets and they were still, you know, even in 2011, I thought it was aggressively priced. Of course, on hindsight, it, the way things took off, it was irrelevant. It was just a super safe deal, buy and hold strategy. That was how I went into it. Yeah. I mean, if, if I could turn back time, I, I would have bought everything I could have bought, you know, between, you know, 2011 and 2016. You know, and it, it's a question, you know, that I think a lot of people look at, you know, People look at the market right now. It's interesting that you said that you looked at the market in 2011 and thought things were overpriced, you know, and and, and think people were paying premiums, because that's what you get right now from everybody who talks about real estate. And I, I think the question is, uh, in a lot of people's minds, are is real estate going to continue to go up? So I'm going to ask you that question. What do you think? Do you think do you think we're overpriced right now, or do you think real estate is going to continue to go up? I think you're seeing that the, the rate curve steepening. You know, the Fed's looks like starting to show some alarm at inflation. That's it's been rampant, but now it's really, I mean, completely taken off. So to me, it's a function of how quickly they raise they raise rates, and even if they they will do it. So right. I just can't. You know, I found it impossible to predict. 
just because yeah. uh, I've, I've been wrong before on it. And, you know, one, one great example is some of the countries that have negative rates where I was just mm-hmm. reading countries like Spain, there's people that get paid by their bank to borrow the money. Right. <laughs> so, you know, think about that. Yeah, it's. It's a penalty on banks for for keeping money in house. You know, I, I think Japan, Sweden, um, Great Britain, and a couple of couple other European Union countries have have had negative interest rates, and then just kind of, you know, for for me, I don't I don't know. I my crystal ball broke. You know, so I'm, I'm looking at other countries and thinking, you know, can the U.S. do that, or will the U.S. do that? Are we going to eventually have a negative interest rate? Because potentially. You know, we could, you know, if, if the Fed decides to, to put things in the negative and they really want to, to kick things into high gear as far as, um, you know, stimulating the economy. But I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And that's that's the question. If, if, if I did have a crystal ball, that, that's what I'd be asking is what's happening to that Fed rate? You know, is it is it going to go up to curb inflation or are they going to keep it low to, to spur growth? So the, the one thing I would speculate is they couldn't really raise it too much just because mm-hmm. It's gotten the economy, everything has gotten so tied into low rates that it seems there's no appetite for yeah. that kind of correction. Yeah, yeah. And I I I think I think we're gonna be in a perpetually low interest rate environment. That's just me, you know, doing a lot of reading and you know, kind of scratching my head thinking. But yeah, ra- raising rates right right now, my opinion, you know, and I don't have formal education in economics, but if they raise rates, our, our economy is not doing extremely well right now. If you took take away the COVID stimulus and everything that's coming come into play, you know, we haven't had a lot of economic growth recently. And to keep the economy growing, you have to keep the rates low. You know, the stimulus has propped up the economy and, you know, without that stimulus and without low rates, I, I think we're, you know, the economy is going to go the wrong direction. So my, my opinion is the Fed's going to have to keep it low for, you know, near term and then you know, we'll see what happens later. But anyway, yeah. So let's, let's shift gears slightly here. I want to talk a little bit about one of your properties in, in, in specific. Um, I, I know we talked a little bit about the 20 unit already, but you got another property you want to tell us about? Yeah, we can talk about um, a recent deal we did in Denver. It's a 54 unit that was a syndicated deal. I think it's a good property to dive into because it could cover multiple aspects, including some, you know, syndication, which, which some, you know, a lot of the stuff I do still is, is principle based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, essentially, right. Colorado is a market I, I love uh, mm-hmm. per- personally, as well as from a fundamentals perspective. And it's a market I've been looking to get into for for a while. And again, being here on the East Coast, incredible disadvantage, right? It's really a network game in commercial real estate because just a lot of this stuff, you're not going to find it listed. And if you do find it listed, then you're up against a lot of competition. And those deals just rarely tend to be good ones. They just get pushed up too high as as far as I've seen. So... You know, on hindsight, 2011, when cap rates were like six, seven percent in Denver, that, that was the time. But just been watching it last few years, especially as cap rates were like four percent going into COVID. And um, when COVID hit and rates dropped to you know 200, 250 basis points, I thought, all right, this this is really the time to enter the, the, this hot market. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are gonna get dislocated. There'll be some distressed sellers and uh, financing sheet. So, you know, I was wrong about the distressed sellers. I think most people were, uh, they certainly have not materialized or mm-hmm. don't exist. And so we were just left with, and um, 
the other thing I did, I forgot to mention was we commissioned an off-market search just mm-hmm. to really try to find the right asset, uh, which we were looking for a heavy value add deal, great core location. So anyway, the, the distress didn't materialize, but we did find some, some sellers. And I think they, they were a bit rattled by COVID at the time. And so we were able to land a pretty good deal in the middle of COVID, but you know, not, I, I was hoping for a discount. We, we didn't get one. I think we, this was a heavy value add. It was slightly north of a 5% cap rate that closed end of January. And we've mm-hmm. been looking ever since, you know, uh, have the off-market campaigns going, but things have dramatically tightened. Anyway, back to the 54 unit, you know, what, what, what can I tell you about it? It was, um, we got it off market, which was great because we were able to negotiate a nice long closing period, yeah. uh, give us time to raise capital. Now, when you're talking about your your off market uh, plan, you're you're going direct to sellers, correct? Yeah. So um, in in this case, we hired um, a third party company mm-hmm. that would reach out to owners, and uh, essentially, the company's called Offered OFF ERD. They have a, you know a, a database and kind of overlay it with analytics, and you can use it to mine properties and then you give them a list and they'll mm-hmm. go out and you know hammer the phones so it's kind of like it's say it's Reonomy combined with or any of those platforms that will give you owner type information and analytics yeah but then they combine it with actually the, the outreach part so yeah. for you know a, a small company like ours we can't really retain a dedicated person to to knock on the phones and it's you, you it, it takes a certain skill set because you, you know, these are typically high net worth individuals or funds, and it, it's tough to get them on the phone. It's tough to get them yeah. the person. A lot of people have tried with no success to go direct to, to owners in this space. You know, I've recently heard a stat, you know, over 90% of the apartments that trade hands are brokered. You know, I think I think the number's like 93% nationwide. But, you know, so so a lot of people don't even try the, the direct to seller. But I, I guess you're you're fitting into that seven seven percent niche where you, you're actually making it work, which is uh, something. I think you're the first person I've, I've talked to that uh, has done this direct to seller campaign and actually made it work. You, know, I know people who've built relationships with sellers, you know, and and just picked stuff up from sellers that they know personally. Not an outreach campaign where you're essentially hiring somebody to dial dial for dollars, essentially. Yeah, and you know, so the typical stats they would you know they would tell me is this company from what they're seeing is at, you know, 1% connect rate where someone will be open to offers. So you call hundred people, one person talk and negotiate, potentially negotiate. So it, it, you know, it's tough. It's a numbers game. And that's why we, we chose to try to get a company to do it because we, we didn't think we could build it up yeah. in-house. You know, I have heard of shops out there that, you know, have their an in-house team that, that, that does this, but certainly brokered way or traditional networks from knowing the sellers is mm-hmm. you know, your traditional off-market. Don't get me wrong, the, the off-market deals aren't pouring in, right? So since that last deal, we've we've been knocking on doors and we've maybe had two sellers we've spoken with. We have an LOI out on, on one deal and the other one, the pricing, it just can't make it work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 definitely something that a lot of people have contemplated. And I know it works a lot better in like the single family, small multifamily space. But yeah, I, I got to say, one of the obvious advantages is you're you're probably the only potential seller, you know, that they're talking with at a time. You know, so it's not like you're competing against eighty other people. You're just trying to sit down with the seller and negotiate something that works for the two of you for that one deal. Um, yeah, and, and 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 I mean, that's also what makes it hard is you know. 
what you know you have to overcome this presumption that you're looking for some kind of deal because why would they take take it on an off market basis especially in a market like this when they know they could get a bid up yeah and you know sure they'll pay that broker's fee but more likely than not they'll get a higher asking price so that's why we found that you know working the phones and being able to build that kind of relationship and understanding was i'd say 90% of being able to get these off market deals is nice. overcoming that presumption that you're, yeah. you're fishing for a deal. All right. Well, that's that's uh, super interesting. Um, but because of time, we're going to shift gears a little bit here. One question I'd like to ask everybody, and I, I think it uh, it's very telling, but uh, what is your big burning why? What's your motivation for what you're doing? Essentially, be able to enjoy uh, living life on my terms, being able to control my schedule, spend time with my family if I want to, take a powder day if the conditions are good. Yeah. And, and not feeling like I have to attend some some stupid meeting, right? So I working at big corporations and is uh, you, I'm just you, just dumbfounded by the amount of time that's spent pushing paper. It is remarkable, and where nothing gets done, and you're just attending some steering committee or or, or some meeting that leads to another meeting. It's like maddening. So just getting away from that sort of inaction and um, being your own boss and just coming coming back down to passive income, really, yeah. because. And the safety of it, because yeah, you can be your own boss. You can launch a, a widget business or an online startup, a social media platform, but there's a degree of risk there. Whereas with cash flowing real estate, it's again, coming just back to, I, I don't see a safer or more, more tax advantaged investment. Yeah, a lot, lot of, a lot of things that are similar there. I mean, I, I haven't worked in corporate America yet, but a lot of what you said reminds me of government. You know, I've been 20 years in the Marine Corps and my, my last job was Pentagon where there, there's a lot of paper pushing. There's a lot of making sure your I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and you know you have two spaces after every period you know, type stuff. But that said, you know, last question for you before we uh, turn to Victor is uh, what's next for you? So um, you know, we're finding that the multifamily space is really crowded in sort of the marquee market. So we've been seeing really strong uh, cash flowing deals. So we're, we continue to bring those to market. We've started some development that we're doing by ski resorts, Stratton uh, and Killington. We've got um, some things planned, including some prefab communities, some like tiny homes. You know, we've re- uh, located great manufacturer there. So trying to think outside the box and, and to get deals done that will get really high returns and and, and where that aren't where the trade isn't too crowded, right? Because the kind of returns we like to do are we can't cross a 15% IRR right now conservatively in any of these top markets as far as I could tell. I mean, we, we of course continue to look, but uh, that's, so that's where we are in the near term until we see uh, some kind of change. And then another thing I mentioned is, is hotel conversions. Mm-hmm. There's going to be an avalanche um, uh, and auctions hitting the market and the, the numbers work. You know, if, if you can get Around the, the the zoning issues and yeah, just the complexity of it, it, it's very attractive. Converting these deals, you'll you'll get much higher returns. You know, all in when you compare it to uh, yeah. existing multifamily. Yeah, I know. I know a lot of uh, a lot of the multifamily value add people that are that are doing these hotel conversions. You know, you can get something for pennies on the dollar, and uh, you know, take you know what what essentially is a studio apartment with, with each hotel room and. 
you know, maybe combine a couple here and there to turn them into one bedrooms or two bedrooms. But uh, I, I see a lot of people moving that direction right now. But anyway, let's uh, one, one more shift of gears, you know, bring Victor on the line with us. So, Victor, welcome. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Hey, so do us a favor. Tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where, where you're coming from and lead us into what got you into multifamily. Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Victor Morales. Um, I am from the Central Valley in California in, mm-hmm. near Fresno. I, I graduated with my degree in construction management in 2003. So okay. since since that point, been working in, in construction management and now as a, as a senior project manager in commercial construction and right now specifically in healthcare. I'm with my company's uh, healthcare division. Uh, I work for a large, large uh, general contractor, kind of almost nationwide. Uh, we're in several several states. And so, about three years ago, I wanted to see if I could leverage my my skill set and what I know and start getting into real estate investing. So I started off with the traditional approach, or I don't know how traditional it is or not, but going to you know purchasing homes. Yep. Uh, me being in California, I looked in where I lived and the numbers just weren't working out. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I had a friend who was a realtor and he was helping me out and he said, Hey, uh, you know, listen to this podcast, bigger pockets. And so that's, that's kind of how my true learning really started was through bigger pockets. And then through where I heard Michael Blanc get on yep. his podcast there. And so since, since then, actually now probably closer to four, over four years ago, I purchased a couple of duplexes in Pennsylvania. I held on to those for a couple of years. And then a year after purchasing those, a little over a year, I purchased a couple of homes in Decatur, Alabama. Now, now I've got to ask the question. You're you're in the Fresno area. You know, why why Pennsylvania and why Alabama? And and how did you how did you get those? Yeah, the the Pennsylvania ones, uh, I found those through um Bigger Pockets web's website. Um, mm-hmm. they have a, a marketplace. Okay. And so one day just cruising through there, see what, what the investors had. I saw this duplex there. Nice. Um, I, I called the, the investor selling it and mm-hmm. he, he was, at, it was actually one, one duplex, but there was another one side by side. And he said, Hey, there's another one next door that the owner hasn't done anything with and it needs a lot of work. And so I said, um, well, I've got money for, you know, for, to put some into the one I'm purchasing, I'm going to need some money for the other one. Do you know any private investors? And so he says, yeah, I, th- I think I might. So I got a small private loan to help, help get me through that second one. So I, I got the purchase, got the private loan, did the rehab. And um, actually I just, I just sold, sold all of, all of those, you know, six units between mm-hmm. Pennsylvania and Alabama um, over the last two to three months. Nice. Yeah. That's nice. Did you get, I assume you got a little bit of appreciation out of those things over the time. Is that how, yeah. how did you do overall? Yeah, yeah, I I, I did okay. Uh, not not big money. Um, I you know I actually haven't done the numbers on the Pennsylvania homes or duplexes, mm-hmm. but on the Alabama ones, I th- I think in in um, about a year and a half I made about twenty six thousand. Yeah, not bad at all. Bad. Yeah, my my daughter actually used to live in Decatur, so and she's the podcast editor, so she's going to listen to this and think, oh, Decatur, Alabama, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she's really going to enjoy me, you know, mimicking her like that. So um, <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. You know, I can't wait for her to call me about this one. But uh, anyway, anyway, yeah, great. So, so good on you for for reaching out to that and you know taking that uh, that leap. I guess and you know for for a lot of people investing cross country is kind of a, a big big hurdle. And you know, I'm I'm sure there was some, you know, it wasn't as easy as it sounds. But uh, you know, good job on getting over that hurdle. Is there anything else you want to talk about specifically about your history, Victor? 
Yeah, I was just going to say that, and you know, through, through listening, you know, hearing of Michael Block uh, through Bigger Pockets, I I found that he had a, a podcast as well. So listen to that because my goal is always apartment investing. Mm-hmm. Um, that that just something that always attracted me for whatever reason. Um, and then I realized that he had a mentorship program. So in January of 2020, I went ahead and signed on uh, with his with his mentorship program and um, got my first deal a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually signed up for another mentorship program, one one that you know Michael was just talking about off market deals. Yeah. So th- this gentleman, he um, he that's what he does, off market deals. Nice. And so I, I've, I've had a hard time finding stuff that works just because as Michael was saying, and everybody knows it's just so competitive. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to see if I could, if I could learn that skill set as well and try both approaches yeah, through nice. the golf market and the traditional approach of going through broker. All right. Awesome. Hey, so real quick, uh, one question I like to ask everybody on this, this show again is your, about your big burning. Why, what, what is your big burning? Why, what drives you? Yeah. Um, it's uh, three things, um, faith, family, and community. The faith drives drives me wanting to just spend more time with family as, as a project manager, you know, in mm-hmm. construction management. We, you know, it's it's a guaranteed 50, 50 hours a week. I know I know when I wake up on Monday, it's gonna be at least 50 hours, right? That yeah. week and, and sometimes more. And so so I want to be able to devote more time to them. I've got, you know, my daughter's 17, she's headed towards 18. And mm-hmm. my boy just turned 11. So I we'll want to spend as much time with him as I can working towards that. Uh, and then the, the second part of that is um, I, I volunteer uh, with Youth for Christ. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I go into with the other uh, couple of guys into our local juvenile hall, um, spend spend about an hour a week with with young men and, and ladies in there. And uh, it's just at the point to where I, I just feel like it's not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have them for an hour, but, but then they leave and, and you can hear it in their voices. And, and, and what they say is, that, you know, when I get out, I'm just going back to the same thing. And for many yeah. of them that they'll return back to juvenile hall. So I want to be able to have some time to devote to them to where we can kind of receive them on the outside and maybe mm-hmm. provide some mentorship. Yeah. Help, help other people. I love it. I love it. All right. Now comes the favorite part of the show. You know, I got a lot of favorites, you know, favorite episodes, favorite everything, you know, everything's my favorite. I got favorite kids too. So um, all five <laughs> of them are favorite, but uh, here we go. Victor, we got uh, Mike on the line here. What do you want to ask him? Yeah. Hey, Michael. Um, th- thanks for, for coming on as well and, and taking a few minutes to field some questions for me. Um, you know, a couple of things you, 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 you already kind of touched on in to, uh, with respect to the, the off-market deals and and the broker. Um, or assume right now you're um, you're, you're approaching both ends. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so absolutely, we we try to always keep an eye out on, on, on listed deals. Try to work existing networks, um, and we have off-market campaigns running. And one of the best off-market sources I've had for deals has been. Uh, my commercial banker, uh, you know, I've stuck with one regional bank and, you know, he, he essentially gives me a look into his portfolio and says, well, you know, this guy's, you know, it kind of aging out, doesn't have anyone to pass it down to, you know, I'll connect you to him. So I, I think um, bankers are, are great. Referral sources, probably the best, right? Because they have these portfolios 
and um, kind of have a sense of who's coming and who's going. So yeah, we just try to just keep it active, you know, at, at all times. And you, you know, had we more resources, I, I, I spend more money on off-market deals and try to build that out in-house. Yeah, one of the things since you know, as I mentioned, I've, I've, I'm starting that approach as well. So the realtor friend that actually first I first started looking at deals with. He now lives in Vegas and and he has a lot of time and, and he's approached me about wanting to get involved into what I'm doing now with, with the apartment. And so he was wondering how he could help out. So I said, well, with, with what I'm learning through the, um, the direct to seller approach is, is yeah, you got to do um, the, the dial for dollars part. So he, so he's agreed uh, to, to come on and, and I'm, I'm going to come up with a, with a script and, and kind of a, a pro program for him to start doing that dialing. So you said a co- kind of a couple of things I I didn't have the time. So I think I found someone that has the time and, and that we can benefit, maybe help each other out that way. Uh, then you also said, you know, looking in Colorado, which is, you know, I'm, I'm on the West coast right now. My, my focus has mostly been in Alabama and Georgia, which it seems like everybody's in Georgia right now. Um, <laughs> But 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 I, I do like those places. Um, I have wanted to get closer closer to the West Coast, and Colorado is one of them as well. If um, between my, myself and my friend, if if we could if we could solicit and, and find some deals, is that something that that you're willing to look at as well? Yeah, for sure. You know, given you are at the West Coast, there's no um, shortage of great markets, um, and and yeah, I especially when you're looking at Georgia, right? You, you have so much competition there. So I'm sure Brian will, will, will tell you that because you have Northeast is such a crowded, yeah. you know, so, so many uh, natural buyers and developers, so much capital sloshing around there. Whereas you have the same or even better fundamentals in some of those states, which again are probably just competitive, you know, Idaho, Utah, mm-hmm. Arizona, yeah, Colorado. Yeah. But I would, I, I would, fixate on one market and then don't spread yourself in. Yeah. 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 And we, I, I would say the same thing as far as picking a market. Uh, I mean, once, once you know one market well and, and get a little bit of traction, it's a lot easier to move to other markets, but before you get a lot of traction in a single market, you know, I, I think if you're, if you're bouncing around market to market, you're going to be spinning your wheels. But uh, you know, we, we focused in, in South Carolina. Um, we got one property in Georgia and, you know, we've got uh, almost, you know, 500 properties in South Carolina alone, but yeah, the more, the more you focus, I think that the more you're going to find good deals. I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Well, uh, just one more question, um, kind of switching gears, mm-hmm. looking forward toward, towards the asset management part of things. Um, I, I don't have much experience there. I, I did, I did, a acquire through a, a general partnership, my first deal with, um, Savannah Arroyo and her husband. At the net worth nurse who she was on just not too long ago. Yep. Um, and uh, um, so I'm I'm just just beginning to learn there uh, or, or or get that experience. But but it, with respect to asset management, what what are some 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 good resources to 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 learn what what that is, um, and and kind of what are some some bumps along the road that that maybe you've faced, Michael? Yeah. So you know the. The, the big thing there is um, active involvement and supervision. So the um, it's, you know, weekly, at least 
weekly meetings with, with the property manager. I'm, I'm assuming um, most of your properties are, or these properties, you have a property manager. And because at the end of the day, uh, especially if you're doing a value add or something that's just outside of the basics of, of collecting rent and fixing a faucet, the, the property manager is just not going to be able to typically to really handle that because it, you know, property management is a tough game. They, they have tons of units under management, especially if you're a smaller player, then it becomes even more difficult. It's tough to get their, their attention. So you really have to be quarterbacking and running point on kind of every aspect of your business plan. And, you know, unfortunately, knowing as much or even more than your property manager about what's what's going on with the property and and, and just keeping them constantly on task um, because they'll, they'll constantly be things falling through the cracks. So, you know, a recent example is we were doing a value add. We, we, we were, uh, you know, wrestling with material pricing and trying to get the units uh, in budget and on, on time we needed it. And finally, we, we kind of, polished off that part and then the units are sitting there vacant and you know we take a deep dive and we discover the property manager is just not really apt at you know leasing new developments or, or new units they're just kind of you see their existing process so we have to call in locators you know third-party ser services to um get people in there to, to lease it up so i guess first and foremost it's active management and then second you know, connected to that is is attention to the data, right? So they should be sending you reports. Um, there's a, kind of any number of platforms out there, you know, at Folio, Buildium, so on and so forth that have reporting functionality on delinquency, vacancies, what, what's coming right ready. So just keeping track of that, discussing that on a weekly basis. And then, you know, if you... That's kind of the, the the property management supervision of the property management part of it, the one on one. It, it can start getting more kind of complex and involved if you're if you're start dealing with investors and investor reporting, um, and, and that takes a different level of asset management where, where you might want want a platform or uh, definitely a CPA. Um, or what we do is we we have like a, we built a dashboard uh, through spreadsheets, which is compares the current performance of the property with our pro forma, you know, side by side. So mm -hmm. it, we've kind of bootstrapped it and built it in-house, but there are um, third-party vendors out there that handle more of the asset management side. Like it's essentially loading data and looking for patterns and kind of flagging stuff. And I haven't used one, so I can't really recommend them, but I know they're, they're out there and I've heard of people using them. It's a great success. Um, yeah, and we we've had uh, I mean obviously, you know, this the property manager and the and the asset management is, you know, 90 90% of the deal. You always obviously have to buy right and finance right, but you know, the management is where the rubber meets the meets the road and where you're really going to make your money, but uh and that that uh, property manager is a key part of that. And that's something that uh, that we we've actually struggled with. We've we've had a couple of different property managers work for us. Um, and looking back at it, I think the, the key is you just got to know what your property managers are good at and what they're not good at, you know? So depending on your business plan, you know, one property manager may be perfect for you and another property manager could be, um, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen. 
so to speak. But uh, um, so so matching matching property managers' capabilities with your business plan, I think, is huge as, as far as that goes. Um, yeah. Anyway, we, I, go ahead. I would just second what you said about the the importance in the deal, and it's also the part of the deal that people often like the least because mm-hmm. or pay attention to the least because it's it's the toughest and kind of least glamorous part. You know, mm-hmm. when you dig into the nuts and bolts of it, a lot of times you're dealing with really like the basic issues that you're pulling your hair out. Like, you know, mm-hmm. why am I sitting here coordinating this? Uh, you know, I'm not the property manager. Uh, yeah. You know, well, and so th- th- that, yeah, just can't stress that enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we, we, uh, we had a property manager who wasn't giving, you know, solid financials. I mean, the numbers were all over the place. Uh, we ended up having to hire a bookkeeper to to make sense of the financials. And you know, after four or five months of that, we started scratching our head and saying, "Why are we hiring a bookkeeper to, you know, fix financials that should come out of a property management perfectly?" But at end of the day, you know, it, it's not as cool. You know, I mean, if if you're if you're like social media popular, it's not as cool to post. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.